recently raking around the bomb site that is my desk, I came across some Christmas round-robin letters. You know the sort of thing in which you learn about the past six months going on in perfect families with model children, all of whom are high achievers who've gained 14 hires or a first-class honors in nuclear physics or whatever, in addition to climbing Mount Everest during the summer holidays before swimming the English Channel during the October break and building an orphanage in Malawi during the Easter holiday. Okay, I exaggerate just a little, perhaps more than a little, but I'm sure you know the sort of thing. And in my odd sort of way, I found myself wondering what sort of round-robin letter Rebecca, wife of Isaac, mother of the twins Esau and Jacob, might have written had such things, and for that matter, Christmas, been invented in those days. And I wonder if it might have gone like this. Dear friends, another year has passed, and the twins are fighting as usual. They started fighting when still in the womb. I thought it would tear me apart, and they've continued battling ever since. If you didn't know there were twins, you would never guess that they were even distantly related. Jacob, with his lovely smooth skin and the complexion of a ripe peach. Esau, looking as if he'd been crossed between Rob Roy McGregor and a Brillo pad. And the difference in appearance is the least of it. Jacob is the home bird, always hanging around the camp, doing what he can to help, quietly listening to his mum. Esau, the very opposite Sometimes he disappears to days and end with a spear and his bow and arrow before he comes back, carrying his latest victim, deer or gazelle or something like that, and usually smelling rather like his prey. Isaac encourages him. I wish he wouldn't, but then he loves to eat game and I have to cook the wretched, horrible, smelly stuff. Mind you, Jacob's shaping up well as a cook himself. He'll make somebody a great husband someday. What a pity that Esau was born first. Although it was a close-run thing, I can tell you. But he was the first, and he's the one that will inherit the blessing. He's the one with the rights of the firstborn child. It's rather a pity. For Jacob is clearly the brighter of the two. I know it's not right to speak of one of your sons like this, but Esau isn't exactly the sharpest knife in the box. But who knows what the coming year will hold, apart from the twins fighting, as usual. Oh, better go. We're at it again. I wonder what it is this time. Love and best wishes, Rebecca. The storyteller in Genesis is a master of the craft. With a rare economy of words, paints the picture of a highly dysfunctional family, two completely non-identical twins who've been struggling with one another since in the womb. A mother who favors the one, a father who favors the other, one quick-witted and rather unscrupulous, the other a skilled hunter, but seemingly just a little slow in the uptake. 
In other words, it's a recipe for disaster. Favoritism in families or anywhere else often is easier, though it is, to harbor favorites. It can be a disaster when one parent gangs up with our favorite child against the other. And Jacob, it seems, gained the scheming gene from his mum. And twice, Jacob dupes his brother Esau. On the first occasion, Esau himself is in part to blame. He's returned from the field hunting. He's famished. Jacob, the home bird, had prepared a stew, and Esau smelt it, warm, reeking, rich. Give me some of that, he demanded. I'm famished. Okay, says the wily Jacob, who knows what he wants and can spot an opportunity. I'll let you have some of my stew, but only if you give me your birthright. And for the sake of some bread and some lentils, Esau gives away his most precious heritage, the birthright of the firstborn son. But Jacob's not content even with that. He wants his father's blessing too, and as the story unfolds, aided and abetted by his doting, scheming mother, he cheats his old dad and his twin. He dresses in animal skins. He masquerades as his hairy brother Esau, and blind old dad is duped into blessing the wrong son. Esau finds out what has happened and pleads with his father for a blessing too, but it's too late. In Hebrew tradition and theology, the blessing once given cannot be revoked. It's a rather heart-rending scene. And Esau resolves to kill his cheat of a brother. But the nimble Jacob escapes only to spend a good chunk of his life thereafter as a man on the run. I laugh sometimes when people say to me, we should get to good old biblical family values, because this family is dysfunctional. But perhaps it could in so many ways be taken as case study for how human beings can get it wrong. There is the folly of favoritism. And we know that favoritism is a folly that still blights human life at all levels, in families, in communities, in politics, in industry. The folly of favoritism can be found in extremes of nationalism. It can be found in the most insidious and extreme of ways, in sectarianism, sexism, racism, it can create havoc and ill-feeling and lasting resentment. And there is, too, the dim-wittedness of Esau, who seems only to live for the moment, for instant gratification, who fails to think of the bigger picture and see the future. And that, too, can represent so much that goes wrong in human life, Instant gratification, thinking only for the moment, forgetting the consequences, the quick, clever tweet or Facebook entry, the quick, 
barbed word, forgetting the consequences, the folly of Esau. It can be at the root of the spiraling debt into which people fall, buy now, pay later. It can be the starting point of an addiction that people never thought would happen to them. It can be the catalyst for broken relationships and destroyed trust because people succumb to the heat of the temptation of the moment. Instant gratification with little or no thought for the long-term consequences and the bigger picture and of the hurt inflicted on others and indeed on self. The folly of Esau It can be also the folly of the human race when it forgets the glory for which God created it, the glory of being able to love and to create, to forgive and reconcile and seek noble and high ideals, to serve others and build for the future and seeks rather than to live for the moment. Might not some of our environmental challenges too be likened to the folly of Esau? Living for the moment, conveniently forgetting the future, disregarding those who will follow and who have to live with the consequences. The folly of Esau and the wiliness of Jacob. He maybe takes the longer view than his brother Esau, but the man, quite frankly, is the double-crossing twister who dupes his twin and his old blind dad. And he gets what he wants, but he has to pay a high price for it, the price of the wrath of his brother, the price of a life lived trying to run away from the consequences of his actions and his decisions, wondering when the day of reckoning will come, when he will have to face up to what he has done. In due course, there is to be a night of hard wrestling with God. Read any newspaper this weekend and you will find tales of people getting what they want, but having in the end to reckon with the price of it all. The Bible never hides from the hard truth about human nature or the reality of how dysfunctional human relationships sometimes can be. And yet, this is the very family through which God chooses to work. And Jacob, that dubious character who would have sold his granny to get what he wanted, is duly told by God that he is going to be a source of blessing for future generations. Jacob, Jacob, Jacob of all people. The poet William Blake said that it was among sordid particulars that the eternal design appears. And here, among the less happy or honorable, less than happy or honorable comings and goings of this one family, God does what God wills. And he upsets any notion we may harbor 
of a tidy and predictable God who works only through good and worthy people. Think of some of the other key players in the unfolding tale of God's dealing with the human race. Moses, a man who had committed murder, a man with blood in his hands. David, talented, but an adulterer, and also with blood in his hands. Saul of Tarsus, a bigot who hated Christians. This is not to condone murder, adultery, bigotry, or Jacob's duplicity, but it does stop us from turning religion simply into a code of ethics. God won't let us do that. The Christian faith does, of course, involve ethics, yes, but at its heart there lies something also that is far, far deeper, and that something, that something far deeper has to do with love, the unconditional love. We call it grace, which is God's bestowing on human beings what they don't and can never fully deserve. The American writer Frederick Buchner has this to say in the matter, luckily for Jacob, God doesn't love people because of who they are, but because of who He is. It's on the house, is one way of saying it. It's by grace, is another. Just as it was by grace that it was Jacob of all people who became not only the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, but the many times great grandfather of Jesus of Nazareth, just as it was by grace that Jesus of Nazareth was born into this world for us all. This is the heart and the core of the matter. This is the overlying, overarching story, a story which includes the folly of favoritism, the short-sightedness of Esau, the trickery of Jacob, the story of God, in spite of all these things, doing what He will. Because God's love is unconditional and it is offered to all people irrespective of background or virtue or past history. It is indiscriminating, cast out into this world just as freely as the sower casts the seed on all types of soil. Shallow, deep, hard-trodden, weed-infested, productive. In some ways, I think the unconditional love of God is one of the most shocking and radical things that the Christian gospel embraces and teaches, because we have an inbuilt sense of justice, which in many respects is no bad thing. But God cuts through our narrowness and our limitations in our love and seeing the potential of others. God makes His sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And parable after parable of Jesus stresses this. God loves us. God blesses us in spite of all, beyond all, 
and through all. And that radical, free, undeserved love is at once shocking and scandalous and glorious. The journalist Alistair Moffat, writing about his mother and his father, said this of them. Of his mother, he said, she loved us first and asked questions later. Father asked questions, and if we supplied the right answers, then he might love us. The God of Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God without the if clause. Amen.